America's favorite game show, The Triangle is Right. And here's America's favorite game show host, Guy Smiley. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is Guy Smiley, America's favorite game show host. And welcome to The Triangle is Right. It's that frantic, funny game show where the answer to every question is a triangle. Yes. Now there is a shape with three sides. That's three, one, two, three sides. Can you tell me what that shape is called? Is it a triangle? Yes, that's absolutely right. It is a triangle. How about that audience? Now for the mega question, what is the answer prairie on? And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal, and this is BOA Live, as we like to say here at the beginning of each program on the live show. No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, no comparison. This is BOA Live. And doing something a little bit different here for our sixth and final live show before we kick off Season 8 because we're doing no returning guests. We've got two fresh, brand-new guests here on BOA Audio to discuss their work. Talking about Aaron Cadio and Manny Famolare. They are the filmmakers behind an all-new Bridgewater Triangle documentary, and they're going to have a big event coming up on October 20th, which where they will premiere the film. And it stars a whole bunch of really... Awesome researchers from the Massachusetts area and beyond who have done fascinating work looking at the Bridgewater Triangle. We've discussed it in various episodes here on the program, various areas uh, with various guests, but tonight we're really going to focus in on the Bridgewater Triangle. So I'm really looking forward to it. I've experienced the Bridgewater Triangle, not in too terrifying a way, but have definitely been in there myself. So I'm looking forward to talking to these guys about their extensive work documenting this. So, Aaron Cadio, Manny Familare, welcome to BOA Audio, and welcome to BOA Live. Thank you for having us. Now, since uh, you guys haven't been on the show before, I guess we should start out, you know, with the standard bio background. Uh, I guess we'll start with Aaron. We'll go, uh, we'll go alphabetical-wise. So, Aaron, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about who is Aaron Cadio. How would you get mixed up in all this uh, Bridgewater Triangle mania? Well, first and foremost, I'm a video production fanatic and a video production specialist. I've known from a very young age that that's what I wanted to do with my life. And I went to Pittsburgh State College from 2001 to 2005 and studied uh, video production there with a communications degree. And while I was at Bridgewater State, I was researching uh, spooky topics around Halloween, looking for a possible documentary to, to do on something uh, of that nature. And I've always been... Uh, very into Halloween. It's my favorite holiday on the calendar. And I was actually researching Spidergate Cemetery in Worcester and somehow stumbled across, across uh, Christopher Pittman's website 
which had a, a long article about the Bridgewater Triangle. And I thought, wow, this is a fantastic topic. There's so many different elements to it. And at that point, I decided, let me try to do my own documentary on the Bridgewater Triangle. So in 2003, I did a 30-minute uh, documentary on the Triangle, which was essentially just a college project. I never anticipated it to be anything more than that. And over time, I started getting phone calls on a regular basis from people looking for copies of the film. And I thought, if I ever do a feature-length documentary on a topic, the Bridgewater Triangle would be the perfect topic to do. Nice, nice. And how about you, Manny? How did you get roped into this? Well, as a kid growing up, I was a skateboarder, and I started using my parents' VHS camera. And I started seeing a lot of the photographers for the skate magazines come with their big white lenses. And I said, wow, that's, that's, you know, that's really interesting. I w- want to start really learning about this. So I remember hooking up two VCRs together and a little Videotronic cut fade box, and I started editing skate videos for myself and, and my friends. And around that same time, I was into the TV show Unsolved Mysteries. Oh, yeah. And we had a family friend that had told us about some interesting stories of birds disappearing over a lake in Bridgewater uh, called Lake Nipahickin. And I remember saying as a kid, you know, I I want to do a movie on this. I remember going to the library, and I started seeing all these articles about uh, a Bridgewater resident that claims allegedly he had seen Bigfoot and uh, UFOs. And I said, wow, this this is really cool because I live in East Bridgewater. And, uh, I, you know, I didn't know all this stuff was right in my backyard. So I kind of always wanted to do a movie on it. And then when I had found out that Aaron was doing it, we kind of teamed up and um, used our expertise and our knowledge. And the rest is history. Nice, nice. Uh, now, I guess uh, the, the interesting part about the Bridgewater Triangle, what makes it so you know, infamous and fascinating to people is just that there's such a wide variety of weird stuff that's happened there. I guess let's, well, actually, let me circle back here because uh, I realize now I'm from Massachusetts. I'm well-versed in the Bridgewater Triangle. we got listeners from all over the world uh, tuning in, not just now, but, you know, down the line on the MP3s and all that good stuff. So uh, either one of you, give us sort of the thumbnail on the Bridgewater Triangle. Bring them up to speed so we're all caught up here on what this uh, – infamous patch of land is all about. The uh, Bridgewater Triangle is a 200-square-mile region southeastern Massachusetts, with the town of Abington being the northern apex of the triangle, the town of Erholith being the southwest point, and the town of uh, Freetown being the southeast point. And the region was first uh, talked about in Lauren Coleman's book, Mysterious America, which was published in 1983. And Lauren Coleman, for those of you who don't know, is a world-renowned cryptozoologist probably the most famous cryptozoologist in the world. Mm-hmm. And he moved from California to Massachusetts and started to get a lot of reports of strange happenings and odd occurrences in southeastern Massachusetts, even though he was living in the Boston area. And he plotted these different points on a map and came up with this whole concept of the Bridgewater Triangle, largely because the uh, Bermuda Triangle was a hot topic at the time. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. It's like uh, it's Bridgewater Triangle, as its fame has grown, over the last like decade or so, it's kind of become like the little, the little brother of the Bermuda Triangle, even though they're completely kind of different phenomena involved. I think right around that same time, Charles Burlett was coming out with his books on the Bermuda Triangle, so I think Lauren kind of zoned in on that triangle area and called it the Bridgewater Triangle. Yeah, yeah. He, he wrote about it in the fringe section of the Boston Magazine. Uh, that was, I think, the first publication of it. 
uh, give me give me sort of like uh, give me sort of like as I was sort of setting us up for here uh, before I circle this back around. The interesting thing about the Bridgewater Triangle is there's such a wide swath of stuff that's happened there. Uh, you know, there's just all, all different stuff. We're talking about UFO sightings, Bigfoot sightings, uh, what other stuff? Uh, Thunderbirds, animal mutilations, a whole bunch of satanic rituals and uh, Indian curses and all kinds of crazy stuff. So talk a little bit about the all the different weird stuff that's happened there, uh, you know, over the years. Well, first and foremost, I think the cryptozoolog- cryptozoological uh, phenomenon that have happened there are the first thing that, that are usually talked about, largely because Lauren Coleman came up with the concept of the Bridgewater Triangle. So he was honing in on cryptozoological sightings. And most of those reports come from the Hockamock Swamp region of the Bridgewater Triangle. And I think uh, nationally, for people that are interested in the Bridgewater Triangle, there's this misconception that the Hockamock Swamp makes up the entire 200-square-mile region. When in reality, while the Hockamock Swamp is probably the second largest wetland in New England, it really only makes up a small portion of the Bridgewater Triangle. Uh, It's largely viewed as the heart of the Bridgewater Triangle. A lot of stories have come out of there. But that's the primary location for most of these cryptozoological reports. Um, And... uh, the most famous of those is a series of Bigfoot encounters, most of which happened in the 1970s, uh, and also uh, sightings of large creatures called thunderbirds, which are large pterodactyl-sized birds, and large snakes, giant turtles, and uh, things of that nature. Manny? As well. Oh, go ahead, Manny. Yeah, there's a little bit of everything. I mean, the consistency in the stories that, that keep coming are... You know, a mixture of everything. Even in the Freetown State Forest, you'll get stories of people uh, still claiming that they see uh, evidence of satanic activity in that forest. You'll you'll get people in the Hockamock Swamp that still say that they see uh, unusual uh, patterns of uh, footprints in that swamp and uh, in the snow or even in the summer um, in the mud. And the stories just keep coming and coming and coming. They don't stop. and I think that the best stories come from people that have never heard of it. I think that when you talk to somebody and they tell you a first-hand account of something that they have witnessed, whether it be uh, an out-of-place animal or uh, something that they saw that they couldn't explain in the sky, I think that if you say to them, you know, have you ever heard of the Bridgewater Triangle afterwards, and they say no, I think those are the stories that are really believable because those are people that um, have never heard of the Bridgewater Triangle and they have they have these stories of things that they've seen or, or uh, even heard about. So, so this, that's, what, that, that's one of the things. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no, I, I was just going to say, I think that what makes the Bridgewater Triangle unique is it's anchored by basically three areas that are essentially the main focus of the Bridgewater Triangle. Now, the Hockamock Swamp is kind of in the center of the triangle, but it's also up towards the northern region. So I kind of, in my mind, view that as the top anchor of the triangle. The lower right-hand portion, as I discussed, is the town of Freetown and the Freetown State Forest, which is outside of the Hockamark Swamp, probably the most famous location within the Bridgewater Triangle. And then in the left uh, corner of the triangle, you have the town of Rehoboth, which is one of the oldest communities in the country and has a a long history of alleged ghost sightings. Uh, So with those three locations anchoring the triangle, it makes for a great paranormal buffet uh, in, in you know, the UFOs are seen in the skies above the whole entire Triangle region. Now, when you're making a movie like that, how do you go about uh, capturing all this stuff in one <laughs> in one film? I mean, I can imagine it's kind of like you got to pick and choose, or at least there's the challenge of sort of, 
I guess, carrying the thread all the way through that it is the triangle. Well, the challenge that, that was uh, a big challenge for us. And uh, I've said this before that if we were to try to document every single strange encounter or ghost story or UFO sighting or odd creature sighting that has happened within the Bridgewater Triangle in one movie, the film would be 60 hours long. Uh, yeah, I think exactly. we did a good job of covering the Bridgewater Triangle at in pretty in-depth at that uh, in an hour-and-a-half-long feature film format. And I think that we were able to draw some connections uh, in regards to the Bridgewater Triangle that help people to understand how all these different things tie together. And a lot of it is held together by the Native American legends that are associated with the Bridgewater Triangle. And for those of you who don't know about King Philip's War, it is the large, uh, it was the bloodiest conflict in American history on a per capita basis. And although the conflict spread to other parts of New England after it sparked in the Bridgewater Triangle area, I mean, the, the, the war began in Swansea, which is a town just south of the, of the traditional borders of the Bridgewater Triangle. And a lot of the towns within the Bridgewater Triangle were affected by this conflict, and a lot of them were burned to the ground, uh, Rehoboth being one of them, Taunton being another. And a lot of paranormal researchers attribute the negative energy that was uh, put out by King Philip's War as the spark that essentially started the odd phenomenon and negative energy within the Bridgewater Triangle. Okay. Just going to take a moment here because uh, it probably, <laughs> probably doesn't help. But, uh, yeah, we got we got folks here saying they can't hear the show live, but uh, we'll, we'll be going to MP3 uh, once the show's over anyway, so we're all good. So if anyone in the chat can hear us, let us know. But everything looks fine from my end, so I don't know what yeah, to I say. Can, I can hear it clear. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Blog Talk says we're fine, so it's a mystery to me. <laughs> And there's nothing else I could do, so we'll we'll continue onward here. Um, talk a little bit uh, about who you got in the movie, and you know how you ended up finding these experts and various folks that are in the film. Well, we um, well, yeah. well, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Manny. Go ahead, Manny. Oh no, I was just going to say we have a great cast of people. Uh, we have Lawrence Bowman who who coined the phrase the Bridgewater Triangle. Uh, we have Chris Pittman. Um, we have uh, John Brightman, we have Luann Jolly, we have Jeff Belanger, uh, we have Andrew Lake. We have a little bit of a mix of uh, of everybody talking about a different area. We have John Brightman talking about the Freetown section. Chris Pittman and Jeff Belanger talk a lot about Kamak Swamp. And Andrew Lake talks a lot about Rehoboth. So we have a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of everybody talking about a different area of the uh, triangle, as well as a lot of first-hand witnesses uh, of people that have uh, seen things in the area over the years. And I think that's what makes the film, uh, you know, unique, is that we do feature such a large number of first-hand eyewitness accounts. I mean, there are a few occasions of, I know a guy who may have saw this, but we try to avoid that. Uh, to a large extent, and we do have a lot of first-hand eyewitness accounts, and some of them are pretty captivating. And as a matter of fact, I think all of them are captivating, and there's one in particular of a gentleman who had a bizarre creature uh, encounter in Rainham just outside of the Hockamock Swamp, which I think is the encounter that people will walk away from this film, uh, and that's the one that they will remember the most. Well, can you tell us a little bit about it then? I mean, give us a tease. Uh, yeah, I kind of view it as the, yeah, it's kind of a... I view as the, the most uh, intriguing story that we feature. Uh, a gentleman named uh, Bill Russo claimed to have seen a small troll-like creature in the swamp in Rainham. 
and the creature actually approached him and communicated with him. And this happened while Mr. Russo was out walking his dog. Now, I don't want to give away too many details of the story, right. but it's a fascinating story. And he comes across as the most credible, genuine guy, one of the most incredible, uh, genuine people that I've ever met. And that's what makes his story so unique. And it took him 20 years to finally tell people about his encounter. He went silent for two decades about this encounter and finally decided to write about it on his blog. And that's how we found him. And uh, we were lucky enough that he was gracious enough to participate in the film. 20 years. Um, it, was that, it was yeah. that traumatic for him? I wouldn't say that it was traumatic but he's now retired, so I think he was afraid that coming out with a story like that might affect his his job, his livelihood, and yeah. he didn't, you know, he didn't want to be seen as some crackpot in the community. But now that he's retired, he basically seems to not care as much, and it's such a unique and fascinating story. And he's one of those guys, like Manny had mentioned before, that had no knowledge of the existence of this Bridgewater Triangle and hadn't heard many of the strange stories from the Hockamock Swamp region. And that's what makes his story that much more intriguing is that he hadn't heard anything prior. He had no, uh, it wasn't like the placebo effect where if you're walking to a location that you know has a, a reputation, your brain may tra play tricks on you or anything like that. Uh, and so it's just, it comes across as a very genuine story. Now, how much time did you guys spend making this movie? I know obviously movies take a long time to make, so, you know, and you guys this was kind of a labor of love. It wasn't like you guys were funded by Paramount or something. So clearly you had to perform your day jobs and everything. So how long, you know, was the process of making the movie? Uh, it's, it's, um, you know, it's been like three or four years, I'd say total. I mean, it's, wow. This is something that I wanted to do. And I knew that I didn't have the, uh, the right equipment or the money to get it. But I knew that what I had, I was going to do the best I could. And then when I had found out that Aaron was doing another one, I said, well, I can either give up a dream or I can either work with him. And then I ended up working with him, and then we became good friends. And, uh, you know, like I said, we, we ended up uh, – spent we spent a lot of time on this film, a lot of long hours and a lot of research. And I, I think there could be a documentary made about what we went through alone. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if we you, had the budget, it would have been would have been great to have a making of documentary along with it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Did, yeah the editing yeah the editing process uh, basically started in January of this year and is uh, taking us up right till now. We're still putting the finishing touches on the film. We have a couple uh, more locations to shoot some B roll for. So all in all, I wouldn't even want to begin to estimate how many hours that we've put into this. If, if I knew how many hours that I've actually sunk into this project, it probably would make me sick to my stomach. <laughs> yeah. And there was so much content that we had that we went over as to make decisions, what to use, what not to use, and what to use and how people will react to it, and what not to use and how people will react to it. And that was just, that was a lot. <laughs> Now explain that a little bit. Like, what what do you what, what would you decide? You know, what, what did you decide not to use? I guess is the. <laughs> well, I'll give you an example. Yeah. Um, one of the scenes we had we had shown at an event on Sunday uh, was about a 15 year old girl that had been kidnapped from her from her home in Rainham uh, in 1978, and two months later she was found tied to a tree in the Freetown State Forest. Uh, it was a popular case that went on for a long time and we do feature that story 
and you know, with all respect to the, the family, we decided not to use the crime scene photos because they were just too graphic. Um, we do have them, but we decided not to use them. Uh, but we talk about it enough, though. Yeah. We do show uh, we do show photographs of the uh, the person that was uh, involved and that was accused of the uh, kidnapping, James Cater. Oh, Jesus. That's some creepy stuff. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot to the case. I mean, the man that was convicted of it um, matched the description, uh, and he had also uh, pleaded guilty uh, in 1969 to uh, doing the exact same thing uh, in June 22, 1968, in North Andover. He had actually kidnapped a 13-year-old girl and had brought her to a forest and tied her, tied her there and left her for, for dead. And she actually ended up getting away. And James Cater had told the judge that uh, in 1976 that he was trying to straighten his life out. And when uh, when the girl Mary Lou, when she disappeared, she disappeared in the afternoon, uh, September 8th, 1978, actually. And uh, around 4:30 p.m., her bike was found, and next to her bike was a tire mark, an accelerated tire mark, and also was a uh, package of uh, Benson and Hedges, I think Benson and Hedges uh, cigarettes. And the description was a dark green car with a black stripe and the man had dark rimmed glasses um, and hair. And uh, the person that matched that description was of James Cater. And uh, when they had searched his car, they had found two cartons of uh, Benson and Hedges cigarettes. And uh, they also found two pairs of dark rimmed glasses. But what they also found uh, the mechanic that had fixed his car on September 20th um, had said that his, I think his ball bearings inside his wheel was disintegrated and that would have caused, um, that would have caused the accelerated tire mark. So it kind of, kind of, uh, you know, and then with the uh, 1968, when he, when he did the same thing, it kind of, you know, pointed all fingers at him. Yeah. Weird. So it's, that's the other strange part. It's not just like uh it's not just like paranormal stuff. It's creepy, creepy crime. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, true crime plays a part in this in the story of the Bridgewater Triangle, and that's not us inserting true crime into the concept of the Bridgewater Triangle. It's always something that's been linked to the Bridgewater Triangle, and true crime specifically in the Freetown State Forest uh, area. For whatever reason, that state forest, whether it be its proximity to a number of large cities and its relative remoteness, uh, remoteness. Uh, it, large state preserve with a lot of dirt roads that go deep into the woods, but it's also conveniently located towards New Bedford, or even Boston and Providence are relatively close by. But like I said, true crime is plays an important part in the, the, the free course and talk to the true crime tie into the paranormal. A lot of paranormal researchers theorize that the negative energy of the of the Freetown State Forest within the context of the Bridgewater Triangle tends to draw in a sinister element. And it's not just murders, it's also a lot of evidence of satanic ritual sacrifice that have occurred there. And one of the things I like to say when we talk about this film is if you research Satanism as a religion, it's often a misunderstood religion. And, and when you get right down to it, when you're talking about Levian Satanism, it is not a religion at all. The Levian Satanists are atheists, and the first thing that they'll tell you is that they don't condone the uh, slaughter of animals, and there's, nothing, there's no human sacrifice. It, it, that tends to be the product of uh, 
uh, Christianity and a spin that Christianity tries to put on Satanism. So when we say satanic activity in the Freetown State Forest, it's not satanic activity that's associated with one of the mainstream satanic religious organizations like the Church of Satan or the Temple of Set. These are self-stylized Satanists that have allegedly committed these crimes in the Freetown State Forest. And one of the tie-ins with that is the story of uh, a satanic cult that was operating in the Fall River area, and the cult was allegedly led by a gentleman named Carl Drew and a woman named Rob Murphy, and this was in 1978. And during the course of that time, it was it was a prostitution ring that was that was a part of this satanic cult. So it was a group of pimps and prostitutes that were practicing Satanism, and three Fall River prostitutes went missing at that time. One of their bodies was found behind the stadium bleachers at uh, uh, Fall River Diamond Volk High School and Fall River behind the bleachers of the football field. Another body was found behind a printing plant in Fall River, and another skull was found at a beach in Westport. Jesus. Yeah, there's actually a book that's written about it, too, by a, a man that has now passed away. His name is Henry Scammell, but the book is called Mortal Remains, and it can be found... On, uh, I think it can be found on Amazon.com, believe it or not. I think it can be found like a buck. Um, it's a good book, though. Whether everything that's in it is true, I don't know, but it's it's a book that's uh, based on uh, based on that information. Those events. Interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty spooky. It's pretty spooky. Now, how is this whole thing? Uh, well, actually, let me let me sort of get to this. Uh, you, you touched on. There was sort of a decision of like what to put in the movie, what to not put in the movie. Like some of this stuff is is kind of you know hard to make. I think. Well, I would think, but I'm I'm not a filmmaker, so maybe I'm wrong. But it's sort of like I would I wouldn't know how to you know make a Thunderbird sighting in, in a movie or a UFO sighting. Was it was there sort of a difficulty as far as that goes, like conveying? Because by in and of itself, the paranormal is you know hard to fathom in real life. So I can imagine it's even harder to put on film unless you have access to, you know, good CGI or something like that. How do you sort of tackle that issue? Go ahead, Aaron. Do you want to? Aaron, are you there, buddy? No, I think we might have lost him. I think we lost him. Let's see if we got him here. Aaron, is that you, pal? Can you hear me, guys? Yeah, we can hear oh, you. There we go. Okay. Okay, yeah. Um, with our budget, with this film... Uh, it was obvious from the get-go that there were going to be some things that were just going to be too difficult to convey or reenact in terms of showing it on film or doing it in After Effects. I mean, I have a, a lot of experience in video production, but I'll be the first one to tell you I'm not a special effects compositor, I'm not a 3D artist, and to hire outside help to do those kind of things would have shot our budget to the roof, and we really didn't have a budget. So one of the things we were lucky enough to do was get in contact with a couple of gentlemen who were illustrators. So for things that were really hard to reenact, we had some really nice hand-drawn illustrations done that we used in those sections of the film. And there were other sections of the film where we actually have shot some reenactments and done some limited uh, special effects. So with those things combined, I think we were able to achieve it in a tasteful way that doesn't come across as super cheesy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the that's the challenge of it all. And I guess, like, sort of what's the flavor of this? of this documentary? Is it sort of just like about the triangle? Are you trying to like get answers? Are you trying to just present the stories? I mean, is there sort of like a, 
obviously the theme is the Bridgewater Triangle, but like, is there is there kind of like a message behind the whole thing? It's 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 largely a historical documentary when you get right down to it. I mean, most paranormal documentaries are boots on the ground, tracing through the woods, or you know, walking through graveyards and haunted houses. This is not that type of a documentary. It's a historical documentary that features a lot of the stories from the Bridgewater Triangle with first-hand eyewitness accounts. And what Manny and I were committed to doing from the get-go, and especially coming from me being a big skeptic when it comes to the paranormal, is we wanted to present this information in a very journalistic fashion. So we, we, everything that you hear the off-screen narrator say in this film was written by us. And we use a lot of language like allegedly, reportedly, because we are not trying to convince anybody that any of this stuff is fact. And the goal of this film is to present this information to the viewer and allow them to make the decision based on the information presented by the eyewitnesses and expert testimony as to whether or not they feel that the Bridgewater Triangle really exists or if it's just a fabrication. Yeah, exactly. And so I guess that is the goal of this film is just to get the information out there in a way that is unbiased but also shows viewers the amount of stories that are coming out of this region. Well, it's pretty amazing. I mean, do you think that it's more just – I guess uh, I'm not sure. I, I believe what I talked to you, Aaron, before we did the show a couple of days ago, you you know, you know, you sort of intimated that Manny was more paranormally interested. In, uh, so maybe, Manny, you could answer this. Is it is it kind of more like – are we – is it sort of like the thing where you buy a red car and the next thing you know you always see red cars? Or, or, or is this an – or is it really there's a spike in this area? Do you know what I mean? Are we Are we sort of like – putting too much emphasis on the triangle when there's just weirdness everywhere, or you think it's really genuinely a hotbed for strange stuff? Well, I mean, there's definitely a consistency in stories in this area. I mean, there's a consistency in stories, you know, with any area in the world, not just one area is is haunted. But the stories that come out of the Bridgewater Triangle, it seems that, especially in the three Bridgewaters, being anyone that you'll talk to, that's lived in the area for over 40 or 50 years um, will tell you that the stories that come out of this area are consistent and they just keep coming and coming and coming versus, uh, for instance, an old abandoned mental hospital, say, uh, that's, say, out the Western Mass or Western part of the, the country, mm-hmm. uh, might have a couple of stories out of it. But then when you when you do research into these areas, you'll find staff that used to work there, and they'll tell you there's absolutely nothing uh, that, you know, that ever <laughs> happened there. For instance, uh, talking about content that we decided to use and what content not decided to use, uh, for instance, Taunton State Hospital. Um, we decided not to talk about that. Yes, it's a creepy place. I work as a paramedic. I've been in there at 3 o'clock in the morning. I've been in there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I've been in the tunnels. I've taken some of the most violent people in and the most violent people out of there. And I will tell you that it is a scary place. The elevators are caged in. The tunnels are very dark. And I have uh, a friend of mine, and uh, I graduated high school with him, and he's a counselor there. And we've talked to numerous people, and it seems like the stories that we get are from patients themselves. So those were the only stories that I could find. I did talk to a few people that were staff employees there, and they said that... Um, you know, they heard some noises in the base, but, I mean, it's it's not enough to, uh, you know, to use in the film. But with the Hockamock Swamp, even to this day, even even on Route 44, I, I had a, a co-worker tell me that her husband never heard of the Bridgewater Triangle. And they he's a tow truck driver. 
and he was going, uh, he was in Rehoboth a couple of weeks ago, and he was going to tow a car, and he saw a guy on Route 44, and when he looked back, the guy was gone. And before even asking her or telling her, you know, about the red-headed hitchhiker, I said to her, I said, ask your husband what he looked like. So she called her husband, and her husband's, you know, 60, 70 years old, and he said that uh, he had a beard. Couldn't tell what color it was, but he had a beard, and it looked like he uh, looked like an old farmer. And I said, you know, that's a dead story that sounds like the red-headed hitchhiker of 44. So the stories just keep coming, whereas I think other parts of the world, you know, there'll, there'll be one or two stories, and uh, it just kind of fades away. Like, I, I can't, like, for instance, the Bermuda Triangles, 500,000 square miles. I can't, I can't remember when the last time that, you know, uh, I heard about a cruise liner maybe disappearing. Yeah, or anything, yeah. You know, so, but the stories of the Bridgewater Triangle, I mean, you can... I know that when we were out, I mean, you, you can pretty much go anywhere, and you can uh, anywhere in the Bridgewater area, anywhere. I mean, you go to Rehoboth, uh, even when we filmed Andrew Lake at the, the library that we were at, the lady had heard stories. Uh, it seems like wherever you go. My uh, my friend's brother is a Seacock cop, and part of his um, job is to patrol Route 44, and he said everyone hears that story, and the stories stay. They keep hearing about it. So the stories just keep coming and coming and coming. Uh, and if we were to include every single area and every single story, this documentary would uh, well, people would people would be glued to their seats in the theater. I think. <laughs> now, yeah. But Tim, you, know. you bring up a good question with that uh, because there are so many stories. Is it that just people are looking for these stories more because they realize they're living in an area that has an alleged heightened level of paranormal activity, and that's actually talked about towards the end of the film we kind of wrap up the, the whole concept of the Bridgewater Triangle. we discuss whether the borders should be expanded or adjusted and even the experts themselves bring up that point and you you equated it to a red car and actually it's funny because Tim Weisberg equates it to blue car if you want a blue car you see other blue cars so uh that's that's unfortunately something that we really can't answer whether it's just that there's a heightened awareness here because this this coin this term was coined back in the early 80s by Lauren Coleman and is that why people are claiming to see more things because they're looking for them, or is there really something going on here? And, 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 and largely, you know, like in a lot of other paranormal documentaries and shows, there really isn't an explanation for it. Uh, and like I said, this is largely just a documentary that presents the stories that have come out of the region, and there are a lot of stories, and there seem to be more stories that come out of this area than in other parts of the country. Yeah. Right, and, and, and some uh, sometimes within the Bridgewater Triangle, don't even have any activity. Yeah, that's you know, weird, too. I never even, yeah, yeah I, I, I didn't think of that, but I presume there, that must be the case. So hmm. it's very odd. Now, I should mention here, uh, again, this probably doesn't make a difference to the people listening later, but we are back live, and uh, Blog Talk has assured me that we recorded the first half hour, so we're good. Uh, I don't know what that was all about, but every time I deal with this Bridgewater Triangle, something weird happens. So uh, for the live listeners, for... Forgive me. Thankfully, there's a, a good portion of them still tuning in here because uh, we kept them waiting. Uh, now, Manny, you said something. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of afraid to go there, but you piqued my interest. Who, who are these dangerous people you're dealing with? Uh, that, you say some of the most dangerous people you've ever dealt with. It's completely off topic, but but it piqued my interest. What, what's so dangerous about these people? Are you dealing you with mean, murderers and stuff? You mean in the Taunton State Hospital? Yes, yes, if you don't mind me asking you. If, you, uh, if it's like if, if you can't tell me, that's fine. I understand. But no, no. I mean, I can. I mean, you know, the state has various mental institutions all over the place. Some of them are like country clubs, 
you know, and others, you know, you wouldn't want to go into uh, even during the day. Taunton State just happens to be one. I've been in a lot in New England. Um, and I got to tell you, the one that I fear the most is Taunton State. You just get that eerie feeling. The buildings are so old, and it just, it really, it really gives you an eerie feeling. And I mean, you know, it's, it sounds, it sounds kind of funny, but it's, but it's true. But if you wake up in the morning and decide that, you know, you, you broke up with your girlfriend or your wife or whatever, and you want to kill yourself, you're going to end up in a place like um, Pembroke Hospital, which is like a country club. It's a beautiful building, and uh, you know, you, you're going to be there a couple weeks, and you know, it's that's that, and you'll get discharged. If you wake up in the morning and you have a plan to to kill your parents, chop them up, and eat them, you're going to end up in Taunton State. <laughs> so, the, the type of people, Jesus. Yeah, the type of people that I've taken out of Taunton State, I've taken, I've taken. You and know, they sent uh, you to get them, <laughs> Manny. You're, you're a warrior, Jesus. I know. I, I've taken. Uh, <laughs> I took a kid out of there before one day that that he actually did have a plan to kick uh, down and uh, chop them up and everything. That's why I used that. There's also another case in Lakeville, which is which is kind of the outskirts of Bridgewater Triangle. Part of it is Bridgewater Triangle, but. Oh, well, there was there was one case in particular that I remember. Uh, the rescue had gone to a barn, and uh, when they went into the barn, they had the guy, and he had the uh, you know the bib the bib on like the, the Leatherface had in, in, in a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and he had he had sheep guts wrapped around his neck. Oh my God! And uh, yeah, he had the machete still in his hand, and he had uh, quite a few dead sheep and all sorts of animals that he was cutting up. And well, needless to say, he was he was uh, doing stuff with them. He ended up in Taunton State Hospital. So it's people like that. So when you go into these places, um, it's you know you get that really eerie feeling um, that you don't want to be there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can yeah. imagine. Yeah, but out of all of them that I've been in, I. It's Taunton. It's it's the one that that kind of gives me the creeps. Yeah, Manny, uh, this is kind of off topic too. But Manny was uh, involved in, uh, and I actually I don't know if I can say this with the HIPAA laws, so maybe I should uh, maybe I should keep uh-huh. my mouth shut. But uh, oh, okay. Manny, uh, the the rabies guy, can we talk about that at all? Or is yeah, that yeah, I mean, violation? It's probably yeah, violation, I mean, right? Well, I mean, I can't mention his name or anything like that. I can't mention the name or what company I work for. I just, you know, I won't say what company I work for or anything. But, I, you know, I, I actually did take a case, um, and I, I won't even say what hospital I took it out of. But the guy actually, his 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 main complaint was that he was afraid of water. He, If you put a glass of water in front of him, he would uh, he would get scared of it. Like somebody, you know, he had a phobia to water. He had uh, acrophobia there, I think it's called. And um, we had taken him to a hospital in Boston. And about two days later, I get a call from the CDC telling me that he tested positive for rabies. Oh, God. And uh, I was on the phone with the lady from the CDC for over two hours. And um, my friend's wife actually had treated him in the hospital and had done, you know, intravenous lines on him and everything. And what, what what ended up happening with that was she said she had gone into a room and uh, there was about 30 guys with suits and it was they were all from the CDC. And it was, it was scary. But, um, you know, upon hearing about what ended up happening with him, it was sad, but uh, it was scary. And uh, it was um, 
something that the lady from the CDC said, I'm probably not going to see again in my career. It was unfortunate for him, but he was a very nice man. We spoke the whole time, and we even he was even on the phone with his wife, and we, we even joked about it that, you know, hey, listen, you know, put a glass of water in front of me, and I'm going to throw up. Is that from and the rabies? I'm, yeah. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, rabies is one of those diseases where uh, if you are bitten by a rabid animal and you do not get the vaccination in time, if you start to exhibit any symptoms of the disease, you're done for. I mean, there's only been two or three people that have survived the rabies virus without vaccination, and they have to be put into this deep medically induced coma. And so yeah. this gentleman unfortunately passed away. Uh, and it starts out, you know, sometimes it's just cold flu symptoms and uh, achy joints. And one of the things is hydrophobia, that if people, are, if people are afraid to drink water. And I just mentioned it because it's a, a human rabies case, a fatal human's, human rabies case is so rare that nowadays, and Manny was, you know, uh, lucky enough, not lucky enough, I should say, but uh, he did, uh, he was involved in that. And it's just something that you don't see every day. Yeah, I'll see yeah, it. It, oh my God. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really interesting sometimes, you know, in my field, we see things that we, we don't want to see, but we see things that we can go back and say, you know, it's it's unfortunate for the person that was involved in this, but, you know, it's also interesting because we were able to see this. Yeah. It, Manny, I, I, I will say this, too. It's, it's been fantastic working with Manny on this, and I think we make a good team because, you know, I, I was unfortunate enough to run my own video production company, so I have access to the tools to make this, this film. But Manny has been doing research on the Bridgewater Triangle for so long that every single uh, story that we wanted to feature in this documentary, Manny had already had scans of newspaper articles for a, a lot of these things. And he has spent hours and hours in microfilm rooms in various libraries in the region just pulling odd stories from this Bridgewater Triangle region and, you know, he deserves all the credit in the world for that. I mean, if it wasn't for him and his research, this film would be nothing. So, like I said, I think yeah. we make a good team in that, you know, I'm largely doing most of the editing on this film, and, and I did most of the writing of the script, but that wouldn't have been possible without Manny's research. And also, because he had a prior interest in the paranormal going back further than I did, he had connections to a lot of these people that had the eyewitness accounts and know somebody who had an eyewitness account and and Manny was the one that would reach out to these people to set up these interviews. So it's like I said, it's been a it's been a really good team effort on this project. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll I'll tell you, it's uh, you know I started with you know a, a city library. I started with Brockton Public Library. I went there and and I would go there and I would I would get the uh, I would get the key for the microfilm room. I would go there and I would open up drawers and there would be literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of files. You know, from the Brockton Enterprise, the Brock, the Boston Globe, the the Brockton Times, the Bridgewater Independent, and these were these would be newspapers dating back. You know, there was only a few in the late 1700s, but you know, the early 1800s, all the way up to the day that I was in there, and I would sit there and I would grab these slides and I would sit down with a legal pad and I would just go through page by page by page and write down everything and just kind of take a mental note on everything and say, well, you know what? Okay, so uh you know, this happened here on this date and this happened on this date, so let me write this down and that's you know, that's where it comes in with the you know, deciding on what content to use, what content not to use. Um, yeah. it was it was just so much research and I mean, you know, uh coordinating the interviews with these people. Some people uh 
don't live around here, but we were fortunate enough. Aaron was fortunate enough. There's two UFO eyewitnesses. That is a man by the name of Jerry Lopes, and he witnessed the UFO that actually um, made the front page of the Rockton Enterprise. And, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, Aaron, you can talk about that if you want and talk about how we actually yeah. were fortunate um, enough to. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't have the date off the top of my head. I think it was 1978 or seven. No, it was actually the spring of 1979. There were two WHDH yeah. uh, radio reporters, uh, Jerry Lopes and Steve Sprigia, who were heading to the Rain and Dog Track to do some gambling to have a drink after work. And they took the exit for Route 106 off of Route 24 into the Bridgewater area, and they saw this large home plate-shaped craft very low in the sky above the exit. And it was not one of those fast-moving, disappear-at-the-blink-of-an-eye craft. This thing was just moving very, very slowly above the trees. Uh, and if you listen to Steve Sprager's account of it, uh, it was the size of three 747s stretched across uh, wing to wing. And they saw this craft, and it was, yeah, it was a very strange uh, occurrence. And the thing that made it even stranger was in that same spring of 1979, you had a slew of reports of sightings of an exact of the exact same craft. And we also featured another gentleman named Ron Baker in that section of the film who claims that he saw the same craft above a restaurant in Easton, which is right down the street from Bridgewater. And it's probably the most famous U.S. UFO sighting to occur within the Bridgewater Triangle. And uh, Jerry Lopes and Steve Sprager both don't live around here anymore. So at first, it was going to have to be telephone interviews with both of these gentlemen. And actually, we uh, WJAR had conducted an interview with Jerry Lopes over the phone. And we were interested in just using excerpts from their interview. But, of course, they don't release their in-house content for for a low-budget film like we were producing. So we had to get in touch with Jerry ourselves, and we set it up. We'll call you. We'll do the interview over the phone. And just as luck would have it, he decided he would be be taking a a vacation to Martha's Vineyard with his wife this summer. And he got in touch with me and said, listen, I know we had talked about doing an over-the-phone interview, but I'm going to be right in your neck of the woods. Maybe we could do something in person. So he actually stopped by my house right off of Route 195 on his way back from Office Venue back to the Providence area uh, because he was catching his flight, but he stopped at my house and we shot the interview in my uh, in-garage studio in my home. And then Steve Sprager, the gentleman he was with that night, also doesn't live around here, but as luck would have it, he was visiting his parents who live in Duxbury, Mass, and he called, was gracious enough to call me ahead of time and say, I'm going to be in Duxbury. Uh, you're welcome to come up and interview me. So those are two people that would have been over-the-phone interviews, but we were lucky enough to get them in person, and I think that makes for a stronger film. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's weird. See, <laughs> you, yeah, I, I kind of had the the segue. That segues perfectly to – I was going to ask you, um, you know, given – I've, as I said, every time I deal with this Bridgewater Triangle, I run into some kind of problems, and uh, not, in, not even mentioning tonight's little weirdness. But uh, I was going to ask you if you guys had any sort of similar type problems while you were making the movie, you know, any technical issues or any weirdness. Like, because I went down there with Chris Balzano, uh, I don't even know, five, six, seven years ago, and we got stuck in the, on, on dirt road for like two hours uh, out of nowhere. It seemed like completely random. So it's always going to be something w- weird that happens. Uh, this this goes right in line with what you're talking about. Back before Manny and I even knew each other and started working together on this, I had it in my mind that I was going to do this documentary. So uh, Chris Balzano was conducting a Freetown State Force guided tour one day, and I tagged along with my video camera to, to film this tour. 
And he was supposed to go do a book signing after this tour was finished. And he goes back to his car, and he had locked his keys in his car in the Freetown State Forest. So then again, another strange thing that happened to Chris Baldano while investigating in the Bridgewater Triangle, locked his keys in his car. So then uh, he had to call AAA. And there was going to be a two-hour delay until AAA was able to get out to the middle of the forest to let him into his car. So then we had two hours to kill. So I said to Chris, I said, I know we didn't have this plan, but could I sit you down and do a, a talking head interview with you? Just I'll just think about everything I can, any question I can think of Bridgewater Triangle related, we'll try to get it done in this two-hour span. So he sat down. I didn't have lights. I didn't have, luckily I had a, a microphone with me, but so we used the car headlights to, to light him into, into this interview because it was pitch black in the forest by that point. And while we were interviewing him, this, this, this is probably the only odd occurrence that happened while shooting this documentary. And I will, I will reveal it on, on this show for the, for the listeners. Uh, Chris Balzano was talking about uh, strange happenings at Anawan Rock, which is a Native American location in the Bridgewater Triangle in the town of Rehoboth, which is the site where Anawan, who was the successor to Metacomet or King Philip after his death in King Philip's source. So King Philip died and basically Anawan was the next one in line to carry the war on. But at that point, the Wampanoags were, were, were beaten. I mean, essentially, there, there, was, there was basically nothing left to the tribe at that point. This was in the summer of uh, 1676. So the last band of Wampanoags was being led by Anawan, and they were being tracked by a gentleman named Captain Benjamin Church and his, basically, which were the first army rangers of the time. They were, they were tracking down the last bands of resistors, Wampanoag resistors. And so the surrender of King Philip, the last surrender, official end to King Philip's war occurred at Anawan Rock. So Chris Balzano is in the woods talking about this this uh, event, and he talks about this wampum belt that King Philip had passed on to Anawan before he before King Philip was killed. He gave the wampum belt to Anawan. Anawan had it on his person when he surrendered to Captain Benjamin Church at Anawan Rock. And then Anwan gave the belt to Captain Benjamin Church. And at that point, nobody knows what happened to this wampum belt. And it's still talked about today that it could be sitting in a museum in England. But to make a long story short, Chris was talking about this wampum belt. And he said that, uh, you know, a lot of people theorize that the weirdness of the Bridgewater Triangle will continue to happen until this wampum belt is returned. And while he was talking about this, the lights went out. Oh, and at that point, we had switched from using the headlights of the car. Andrew Lake, who was on the shoot, had this battery-operated camera light that he was letting us use. So at that point in the film, we were using this battery-operated camera light. Light goes out while uh, Alan was talking about the wampum belt. We get everything back up and running. We get the lights back on. You hear a gentleman in the background say, um, Chris, did you notice that the lights went out when you started talking about the wampum belt? And Chris you know, thought it was really interesting. He was like, oh, that's a weird coincidence. And then Chris in a joking manner, turns to the side as if he's talking to a ghost and says, we hear your message. If I could return the belt, I would. And as soon as he said that, boom, the lights went out again. I mean, the timing wow. was just absolutely perfect. And we feature that in the Anawan Rock section of the film. And it's probably, like I said, the only really strange occurrence that happened while shooting this documentary. That's wild. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it, it really was. It really was something. Yeah. <laughs> you love, were you there when this happened, Manny? I wasn't there. I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know Aaron at the time. But um, wow, it, it's it's very very weird, and it's not fake. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes. That. That's people just, are going to uh, think that we staged it just because the the timing was so perfect, and you know because I'm uh, because we approached this from such a journalistic standpoint. You know, we're not faking anything. You know, I mean, I, I can say that until I'm blue in the face, and there's going to be people out there that don't believe right, me anyway. Right. But this was a genuine yeah. thing that happened. 
you know, I'm like being a skeptic, you know, I just think it's this wacky coincidence most likely, but there, you know, it is just very, very strange that the lights went out twice and the second time it went out especially was an immediate response to Chris basically playing with the spirits. <laughs> yeah, that's that's this is so bizarre. You've left me speechless on that one. I don't even know what you guys after that happened. Were you <laughs> you still had to wait for AAA? Were you like were you like spooked out? Were you like all right, let's uh let's talk about baseball, you know, or did, or were you just kind of did you just continue onward with the conversation? Yeah, we 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 continued on with the interview, and uh, like I said, it was quite a lengthy interview, and it was never supposed to happen in the first place. But a good thing that it did because it ended up being one of the most uh, intriguing parts of the movie. Now, talk a little bit about uh, Alan Alves, because I had the uh, privilege of meeting him uh, when I was on Spooky South Coast a few years ago. He's a really interesting cat, and he did a lot of research into into the the real weird, uh, I guess let's call it true crime aspects of the of the triangle. As I said, it's as we've said here over the course of this conversation, it's it's like a two pronged uh, area of weirdness. You know, so uh, let's let's get back into the true crime aspect, and and, and especially Al, Alan Alves because he's a really interesting guy. Alan Alves is a retired detective from the Freetown Police Department, and his career spanned from the 1970s, and I think he retired in 2003 or 2002, right when right when I did that first documentary uh, back in college. But the Freetown State Force, especially in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there was a lot of evidence of. Uh, satanic ritual activities going on in the Freetown State Forest, everything ranging from just, you know, stone pentagrams with, with dead birds in the middle to, at one point, uh, a dozen baby calves being found slaughtered uh, in the woods near the Dartmouth side of the Freetown State Forest. And for whatever reason, Alan Alves became the guy on the Freetown Police Department that became responsible for investigating these odd occurrences and these, these, uh, these ritualistic crimes and, and things of that nature. He drew the um, short so, straw. Exactly. But <laughs> during that time, too, especially in the 1980s, there was something going on in this country called the Satanic Panic. And yeah. there was a lot of accusations across the country of Satanic ritual abuse going on. And a lot of it, and 99% of it, was was made up. And it, there's no there's no evidence that any of it actually happened. And it was almost like a witch hunt at that point. But Alan was operating in an area where there really was some strange stuff going on. Now, looking back on it, you could say that some of it may have been stuff that was done by, you know, impressionable teenage youth that were just dabbling and just fooling around. But some of the more serious stuff is really hard to to attribute to just kids fooling around. Uh, like I said, one of the things that he found were a dozen baby calves slaughtered in the, the woods near the Dartmouth side of the forest. That was the most recent thing that was that occurred in 1999, but... There were incidents of grave robberies going on in the Freetown State Forest. People were going into these old cemeteries that had been there since the 1800s, 19, uh, you know, uh, late 1700s, 1800s, digging up graves and taking the skulls off of corpses. And there was also a story of a mausoleum being broken into in the Estonia, uh Cemetery, which is just outside the Freetown State Forest. So there was a lot of this really strange stuff happening, and then it ties back into that. Carl Drew, Robin Murphy, Fall River case because Alan was involved in the investigations in the Freetown State Forest. He was brought in as a consultant on that case because he had done so much investigating of uh, satanic crimes and satanic activity in the Freetown State Forest. And a lot of witnesses say that that cult, in addition to practicing their rituals in Fall River, was also going out to the Freetown State Forest to practice some of their rituals as well. So those are the kind of things that Alan was, was involved with. And he's very open to talking about it. And he was 
you know, he's been fantastic and uh, has been very, very accommodating to us and has done the interviews and gone out to locations in the Freetown State Forest. We spent hours tracing around the woods trying to find where those grave robberies occurred, but unfortunately we couldn't find the location. I mean, this was years and years ago, and Alan did his best to help us find it. But those are the kind of things that he's, he, he's done for us. I can imagine that takes a toll on a on a man, being the, the guy who's tasked with that kind of stuff. Well, and not only that, but he uh, he has a very interesting career. I mean, he investigated that stuff, and we also were talking about the Mary Lou Arruda case earlier with that guy, James Cater. Alan mm-hmm. Alves just happened to be the first guy on the scene in that case, too. So the guy has, for, for a, a cop in a town of 9,000 people, the guy has had a really, really interesting career, and his his career could be its own documentary. And that's one of the neat things about this whole topic of the Bridgewater Triangle is any one of these subjects that we cover could be a documentary documentary in and of itself. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, the whole. I mean, you touched on it earlier, telling the story about Chris and the um, and the wampum belt and everything. But the whole Native American history there is is remarkable, and and uh, you know, I'm surprised that hasn't really been given the full treatment yet although he did a, a fantastic job of that in dark woods the book so we do feature there is um a lengthy uh part of the film that that talks about the uh king philip's war as well nice it kind of talks about it throughout the whole film but there's a there's a part that really goes in depth about the war now someone in here uh who's not from the area so they probably don't know the geography necessarily. They want to know uh, if uh, there were any witch trials on record in the area, uh, which I don't think is the case because Salem's kind of far out of the realm of that, but uh, we will ask you. So, uh, No no witch trials uh, that I know of that occurred here in southeastern Massachusetts. Um, there is a chapter, you mentioned Doc Woods, and it's funny that you mentioned this now, and this actually we don't talk about in the film, and the reason was we weren't able to get in touch with the same people that Chris was. He kind of lost touch with these people as well. But in Doc Woods, and it's my favorite chapter in the book, he talks about uh, a group of boys that lived in a neighborhood uh, in Freetown that were haunted in their dreams by a witch. Mm. And there was an old yes, stone foundation of a house. Yeah, there was an old stone foundation of a house in the woods next to this cranberry bog in, in Freetown. And that's where these these dreams were stemming from. And it was, it was, it really, if you read that chapter in the book, it really makes the hair on your arm stand up. I mean, I, that chapter just really stuck with me. And just so an odd coincidence in regards to that as well, um, there were two locations in the Freetown State Forest that were referenced mm-hmm. quite a bit when it came to the satanic activity going on in the Freetown State Forest. One of them was an underground bunker, and the other one was this makeshift hut. And it just so happens that the makeshift hut is within I mean how like a couple hundred yards of this witch's yeah. this alleged yeah. witch's house foundation, which is just another strange coincidence. Yeah. yeah. Weird. Now we, Chris's ears must be burning because uh, the 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 other thing that he's pretty famous for uh, from that whole Bridgewater Triangle area is these puckwudgie creatures that uh, have become pretty popular in the last few years, and it seems like every region has their own little creatures, but. Uh, they've been pretty well documented in this area. So, for again, for folks who aren't familiar with this, what is this whole thing with the puckwudgies, and what is this all about? Go ahead, Manny. Go ahead, Manny. Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, <laughs> you, you got the hot potato, Manny. <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. No, a, a puckwudgie is almost like what we described uh, 
William Russo had seen. It's like a Native American mythical creature. It stands about four. I know it sounds kind of silly, but if you actually go to the Freetown Historical Society, they will, they will tell you that they, uh, they're real. But um, there's actually a children's book written about it, too, um, that's called, uh, I think it's called The Little Giant. Aaron, what's that book called? Uh, the the Great Giants the and the Little Fuck Wudges or something like that, yeah. Yeah, it sounds silly talking about it, but the little four-foot trolls that, uh, you know, supposedly live in the forest, and they uh, can cast magical powers, they can make themselves invisible, and they're known to uh, have been seen on the uh, Sonnet Ledge, and um, people that have uh, stood atop the uh, Sonnet Ledge have, uh, you know, reported seeing them, uh, and they're known to even push a person off. Now, I will tell you that I, I have a friend that we feature in the film that is uh, a Freetown firefighter, and he will tell you that that ledge is known for uh, quite a few suicides that are unexplained. Yeah. Now, whether or not a Pukwudgie is real, um, you know, makes one to believe, you know, in their own judgment, but um, it is something to, to think about. But, uh, you know, they're talked about in the film, and we feature some uh, some illustrations on them. But I've spoken to people that have been riding dirt bikes in that forest for the past 20 years, and they said they've never heard of anything. But I've also spoken to other people that uh, are old-timers, and they will tell you that they have heard of them. And that uh, you know, we couldn't really find anyone uh, legit that had seen them. Uh, but like I said, we don't want to give too much away on William right. Russo's theme. But uh, yeah. it's... it's well, Go ahead, Aaron. So I'm um, just to expand on what Manny's saying. There is a, a Puckwudgie encounter featured in Doc Woods, and the woman's given an alias, I believe, but she goes by the name Joan in the uh, in the book, and she uh, uh, retells her story of a Puckwudgie sighting that she had in the Freetown State Forest while walking her dog, and her story bears a striking resemblance to the story that we feature from William Russo up in the Hockamock Swamp area. So it's just another one of those strange coincidences that we came across in this film, that these two stories, which occur in two separate parts of the Bridgewater Triangle, draw so many parallels to one another. Yeah. It just was, uh, you know, it was really, really interesting. Well, it's, uh, can you just talk a little bit about, I guess, describe these things? You know, like, uh, are they like, I hate to diminish them, no, no pun intended, but are we, are we talking about like Ewok-type Creatures. That's kind of what I'm imagining. So you know, clear it up there's for me. Three, so I guess I'm not. There's supposed to be three to foot, four foot tall, troll-like creatures who are supposed to essentially, I guess, look like shrunken Native Americans. So if you picture what in your mind what you would think a Native American would look like, shrink it down, give it pale gray skin, give it enlarged uh, fingers, enlarged ears, and an enlarged nose, and you basically have uh, a puckwudgie. Uh, if you Google Puckwudgies and hit images, you'll come up with a bunch of different artist interpretations of what they look like, and that's kind of where we got our inspiration for our illustrators to draw depictions of Puckwudgies for the film. But they're supposed to have these magical powers. Uh, some of the powers include shape-shifting, glowing in the dark, and things of that nature. Uh, and they're supposed to be a mischievous creature who, in, over time in the, in, the, uh, Puck, uh, in the Wampanoag history, they went from being just mis mischievous to being seen as downright evil. And that's why they're attributed to leading people to their deaths in, in places like the Estonia Ledge. Yeah, almost like a bad omen if you if you see one. 
Exactly. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Since we're at the halfway point, let me uh, let me get some plugs in here for you guys. Uh, the film is The Bridgewater Triangle. Uh, is that what it's called? The Bridgewater Triangle, right? It says straight up. That's the correct. Title, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, was, I thought maybe there might be something else to it. I'm gonna be an idiot. And the <laughs> well. and the and the uh, the website is thebridgewatertriangledocumentary.com. And uh, we'll we'll get into the the big event that's coming up soon uh, in a little bit. But I wanted to make sure we uh, got that in. And let me also mention uh, the phone lines for people who want to call in. It's six four six three seven eight eighteen sixty eight. So if you want to call in, you got a question, or you want to talk about the uh, Bridgewater Triangle, we'd be happy to hear from you. Um, now, was there anything in the movie that was, like, so weird that you uh, had to include it in the movie, even though it was just totally unbelievable? Uh, it was just, you know, it, it had to be documented, if you will? I think um, just doing all the research, you know, with the stories. Go ahead, Aaron. No, um, I would say that part of the... Part of the um, fabric of the Bridgewater Triangle, of course, is urban legend. Uh, because anyway that you have a, a, a high level of alleged paranormal activity, there's going to be a lot of urban legend that springs from that. And one of the stories that we talk about, and it's one of these stories that everybody talks about but you can't ever find an eyewitness for, is the legend of, a, of the mad trucker of Copacut Road, which also takes place in the Freetown State Forest, or allegedly takes place in the Freetown State Forest, where if you're driving down this long seven-mile dirt road called Copacut Road, you might have a run-in with this, truck that comes out of nowhere from behind it's supposed to be a larger truck and the truck will drive very aggressively and run you off the road and then disappear uh and that's one of those you know it's it's almost impossibly to prove on a scientific basis you can't find any first-hand eyewitness accounts of it but it's 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 a legend nonetheless and a lot of people talk about it so we do have a very brief section of the film that talks about the menacing mad trucker of Copacut Road but nonetheless it's a fun legend and it just is part of the fabric of the Bridgewater Triangle yeah. yeah unfortunately um unfortunately our production assistant Johnny that works with us uh, him and I have a story but we couldn't feature it cuz it people would just say it wouldn't look right um with the producers having a story but years ago I'd say yeah. about 20 years ago we we had gone actually over 20 years ago. We were in high school. That's, I guess I'm old. Um, <laughs> just, we, you've just yeah, realized this now on the show. Really, so talking over 20 years ago, um, we were in the Freetown State Forest. We had gone down there, and being down there, and you get this eerie feeling because you're on this tiny little windy road. There's no houses out there. There's woods, miles of woods around you. And it's a really eerie feeling. We were on this road that was all dug up, and, and you could only go to you know, five, six miles an hour on this road, or you bottom out your car. We were we were way in. Uh, we had to be at least miles in, and we saw these headlights behind us. We actually weren't on Copacut Road though. We were on a road called Bell Rock Road, and we saw these headlights coming. And we thought it might have been a quad somebody on a quad or something. Yeah. So all of a sudden, it, we saw that it was wide. It was too wide to be a quad. But it started gaining on us. So, of course, I, I fought it. And, uh, you know, we were all scared. And we uh, we had finally got out of the woods. And when we looked behind us, it had just vanished. It, had, it, it disappeared. So we didn't, we didn't feature that in the story because it just it would look too fake. Yeah. But my friend Dennis, our, our friend Dennis, had gone down there and we had told this story to Aaron too. A um, couple months after that, and he went down there with his big boat of a Cadillac, and he had gone to the left of the road that we had gone to the right after we had seen the light disappear. 
And he wasn't too far down when a couple of guys with ski masks dressed in black tried getting in his car. They jumped on his hood of his car. They started stabbing the, the hood of the car with a screwdriver. And, I mean, he he spun out. He turned around. And, I mean, these guys tried getting into the, the car. One of them, hood, you know, hung onto the hood. And when he finally spun around, the guy fell off and he took off um, and he never returned. But uh, it was it was weird. But those are just some of the stories of uh, things that have happened to people in that forest. I could go on, actually, and on and on. Even uh, a friend of mine that we feature in the film that actually found the underground bunker with his father, his neighbor, uh, who's an old-timer, his son had gone out to that forest um, years ago and had hit something, he said, like a tripwire, and all these lights came on, and all these guys with black robes had literally walked him out of there and said, don't ever come back here again. Oh, my God. What what they were doing, don't know. But (laughs) he said the story, and it's, it's very believable, and I don't. The guy wouldn't lie. I don't think the guy would lie. So, yeah, I need uh, a fresh pair of underwear after an incident like that. I think so. Yeah. Well, I almost did the day that I was in there. So, my God, I think I, I, think I needed a new transmission when I got out of there. <laughs> um, now, you earlier we talked about uh, the the story about the guy who saw the hitchhiker, but he had no real uh, knowledge of the whole thing. It's interesting. I guess the, the the question is, you know, people who live in Roswell, obviously they know all about the Roswell thing. People who live in Exeter, uh, most of them or a good portion know about the, the incident at Exeter. You know, if you're, if you're part of like, you know, the Mothman area where that all happened, you kind of have an idea of the esoteric history of the area. What's it like for the people, uh, you know, in the Bridgewater Triangle? How how prevalent is the knowledge of its place in paranormal lore? I would say the you run into uh, for instance, we were at a paranormal and psychic fair in the town of Fairhaven this past weekend on Sunday, mm-hmm. and you run into people at this fair who have heard about the Bridgewater Triangle, have researched it extensively, and of course, I mean this is a paranormal event, so it's going to draw those type of people. So you have those kind of people that come over to your table and they say, "Oh, I've had all sorts of encounters there, and I have all sorts of stories, and I know people that have stories, and they go on and on and on and talk about it, and it's interesting." But then you have other people who are from this area and into the paranormal who walked by our table who saw what we were doing and had no idea about the Bridgewater Triangle and had never heard about it before. Yeah. So it runs the gamut. But you, I would say of the if you walked up to I would say if you went to a not a paranormal location and just were in a public place and you've got ten people lined up and asked each of them if they've heard of the Bridgewater Triangle, I would say probably at least three out of the ten or four out of the ten have probably heard some mention of it somewhere along the line. That's, wow. Maybe okay. would you agree? Yeah, I would agree. And in the Bridgewater area, you might even have all ten of them that have heard about it. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, in, in the area. So, yeah, I would agree. I think, yeah, I think the further you get away from the Bridgewaters, the less like you are, likely somebody has heard about it. But even uh, in other towns that are in the Bridgewater Triangle, but are not, quote-unquote, the Bridgewaters, you will find people that do have some awareness about the Bridgewater Triangle. Well, it's interesting. It's changing, you know. It's uh, th- This thing has gotten much bigger in the last, like, 15 years. I mean, I remember hearing about it a little bit, uh, you know, like that's what inspired me to get in touch with Chris to do the article in the first place. And then after that, it seemed like, and again, maybe it's that red car thing because I'm from the area, so all of a sudden I started running into people who were 
researching it and stuff. But it does seem like the Bridgewater Triangle is getting more and more publicity and media attention, you know, in the last like 15 years or so. Would you oh, guys agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I would say so, yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, the, the invention of the Internet and it puts people in touch with each other uh, a lot more consistently than they would have been otherwise. So people can put their experiences up for other people to see. And social media, uh, I think, is raising the awareness of the Bridgewater Triangle. And every Halloween, every news station in the area usually does some segment on the Bridgewater Triangle. And all these books have been written and all this research has been done. So, um, I, you know, I think over time it just becomes more and more of a popular subject. And you get some people that say, oh, Bridgewater Triangle, those stories have come out of there in 30 years. But, you know, the film, our film does feature uh, stories that are more recent. And I think that's what makes the film special. It's not just a rehashing of the same old stories that people have heard. I mean, we feature those stories, of course, but we also feature some new stuff as well. Is there anybody doing, like, uh collecting these stories right now, like let's say, for instance, someone's listening to this show and, you know, in a week they are driving through the area and they run into the hitchhiker thing or, you know, they see a puck wudgie or something. Is there like sort of a, a central website or researcher that, that is sort of the person that they should contact to, to tell them about this incident, you know, because that, that's what kind of uh, has stuck with me. It's like there's a lot of people who dabble in this, but there doesn't seem to be any sort of central clearinghouse for for Bridgewater Triangle events and, and reports, if you will. Hey, you want to take that Go one? Ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's other people out there that, that have blogs on the Bridgewater Triangle. Um, yeah, everybody does their own research. So there's there's some excellent sources out there. Uh, there's Chris Pittman's website, and uh, there's a few other websites. If you just Google the Bridgewater Triangle, um, you'll get tons of websites, uh, yeah. you know, other than just Wikipedia. So I mean there are there you know there are other uh other sources out there um where people are collecting uh you know more data than others um you know we in particular don't have a website uh you know we just we gathered all the research and we we don't have a website where you know you can go to and you can uh you know kind of read everything that's that's just you know, why we were doing film so I would say the most reputable researchers in the area would probably be, uh, even though he's not living here anymore, you know, Chris Balzano has done extensive work on the Bridgewater Triangle, and Chris Pittman uh, has done extensive work on the Bridgewater Triangle. So if you're looking, I guess if you're looking to contact somebody who still lives in the area, uh, Chris Pittman would probably be the guy. And his website okay, yeah. is uh, cellar, cellarwalls.com. Cellarwalls.com, like, like cellar, I, like a basement? I, yeah, like a yeah, basement. I believe that's right, and I know Chris Balzano's listening in is on the chat room, so if I'm wrong on that, please correct me, but nope, uh, I think it's sellerwalls.com. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Because yeah. it, it would be Chris, good to have, like, a, a, a site that's sort of the uh, the hub of 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 the, the research, if you will, so you, so you have a place to report this to. I'm, I'm, I guess I recommend that. Uh, maybe you can float that to the experts when you uh, when you guys all convene on the 20th. Um, you know, because, you know, a Bridgewater Triangle reporting center would be a big boon, I think, to the whole research of the area. Yeah, we were going to put we we're going to put on our website as well an area where people can submit their own stories, which I'm sure will get will get flooded with tons of them. I know that I I had a Facebook and I know that the stories were coming uh, in the hundreds a week. I mean, it's just it was amazing the amount of the amount of information that you know I used to get. 
But we're going to put something on our website where people can submit their own stories as well. Okay. Now, I got a caller here. Uh, I Googled the phone number, and it comes up with your last name, Aaron. Is someone from your house calling uh, the show? Uh, I don't believe so. Is it a All right. 508 let's, let's, area code? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't say your whole number now. Just <laughs> I, I won't. Yeah, no, five, okay. there's a lot of 508 numbers out there. <laughs> no, no, no. I Googled the whole number, and it comes up with your last name. Uh, so let's, uh, let's bring them on the show here and uh, see what they have to say. Uh, 508 caller, you're on the air. How are you doing tonight? No. Very weird. It's the hitchhiker. I will, yeah, I know. Yeah. All right, we're going to mute them. I'm gonna, I'll am gonna copy the number and send it to you, Aaron. You're not going to believe it. So, all right. I'm gonna, well, I mean, I'm gonna... my cell phone number is on the website. So if it's 508-264-3578, that's me. I'm on my own cell phone at this moment. So <laughs> No, 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 no. There's even more weirdness going on. All right. <laughs> I'm going to put them on mute now. That's odd. All right. <laughs> Check your Facebook in a moment. I'll I'll send you the uh, the number so you can take a look. Um, All right, sure. Yeah, that was kind of odd because I saw they they had been on hold for a while, and so I, I I was like, well, let's check the number here and see uh, where the area is, and then it came up with your last name. So it was kind of like, why is he calling? Why is he calling from two numbers? So. Um, well, see, this is something interesting already. Something weird going on. <laughs> exactly. Now, did you run into any? Did you run into any uh, sort of turf wars with regards to this whole thing? Because even in my limited experience with this, it's like you you start talking to people and and paranormal researchers in the area, and it's like they're <coughs> excuse me. Um, you know, they've done Bridgewater Triangle research, and if you mention that you've done Bridgewater Triangle research, next thing you know, you know. It becomes a, a penis measuring contest. It, ter- it turns into like you know, I camped out in the Hockamock Swamp, and then the other person's like, "Yeah, well, I wrestled the puck wudgie once at, in Rehoboth State Park," and so it turns into like this, "Can you top this uh, attitude?" But that was just for my personal perspective. Did you run into this, sort of this kind of turf war thing? I will say, as uh, as somebody, yeah, as somebody who's not uh, a paranormal researcher. Uh, I will say that for whatever reason, and I've learned this in these past few years of working on this project, it is a very competitive field, and there are a lot of really hard feelings uh, between different researchers uh, in regards to the Bridgewater Triangle, especially. And I don't know why that is. Uh, you know, I'm not. I don't really have my ear to the ground uh, in regards to to the film. I mean, uh, to the. Uh, to the paranormal community. So it, for whatever reason, I don't know, there's a lot of backstabbing, there's a lot of information stealing, but in terms of us coming across anything like that, I can't really say that. I mean, we've had our drama along the way that we've had to deal with, but um, I don't know, Mandy, you you want to expound on that? No, I mean, like you said, I mean, we we have, but I mean, it is what it is. We, you know, um, you know, it's a tough field. It, it really is. Um, you know, it's, I guess, an odd field. <laughs> Kind of strange things happening. Uh, we may have solved the mystery of the mystery caller. We think it might be Aaron's parents. So yeah, I don't, I don't know, Mom. If you're out there listening and you have something to add, I, I guess you're. I don't know, Tim. Is, is, is I guess she's free to do that. <laughs> we gave her the chance. I don't. <laughs> Aaron, call, call your back. Call back, Mom. If you if you want to call back. <laughs> I told her. I you know she wanted to listen in tonight, so I told her how to do that. Um. So I guess you know, she she. she She's got something to add. Um, 
Now, Hillbilly in the chat room wants to know, does quote-unquote evil, in, the, in, in your opinion, exist incarnate in that area, or just evil entities find it, uh, you know, a pleasant place to be for whatever reason? So, you know, is it kind of like, it, does, it, does it attract evil, or is it just evil and that comes outward, if you will? I know it's almost an impossible that's, question to really. That's kind of that chicken or the egg question, uh, right. which we tackle, which we tackle extensively in the film, and especially uh, Tim Weisberg uh, talks about that at length. Um, I, as a as a as a skeptic, I, I really can't shed any light on that. Um, I will say that other researchers, um, I think, cite again King Philip's War as the spark for negativity in the area. So maybe evil ignited itself in the region because of that horrific event. But even even when you're talking about King Philip's War, I think it's kind of it's almost in a way too easy just to cite King Philip's War because if you if you know your history, King Philip's War began in the Swan, in, in the in the town of Swansea at the time, but the war quickly spread and engulfed not only Massachusetts but also engulfed Rhode Island and western Massachusetts. So it didn't confine itself to the Bridgewater Triangle. So to cite just King Philip's War as the source of the negativity is a little too easy, I think. So to answer your question, I I don't have an answer for that. Manny might have a different 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 feeling well, on that. No, no. I mean it's you know, you you pretty much summed it up, you answered it correctly, so that's pretty much what I would have said too. Well done, Aaron. <laughs> Thank you. To circle <laughs> to circle back yeah. to the to the, the sort of infighting in turf wars. It's a it, I should say though, I'm not, I don't, I'm not taking uh, the Bridgewater research folks to task. That seems to be the case in all paranormal fields. You know, it's like Roswell or any of these big cases or signature areas or events always seem to have people that, are, you know, sort of jealously guard their research or or think that they're doing better work than anybody else. So it's not it's not a it's not a it's not a Massachusetts thing. <laughs> um. Let me see what else we got here. Any questions in the chat room? Somebody asks about uh, possessions or oppressions. This is uh, Chris Pinio, my old high school friend. He wants to know about uh, any any sort of uh, incidents of possessions. I don't know what an oppression is, so uh, I'll just put it out there. Uh, possessions or oppressions in the area. We actually feature a clip in the documentary in the Freetown section. It seems like the, a lot of the discussion is focusing on Freetown tonight. Um, where we were given permission to use a clip from Chris Balzano's book, Picture Yourself, Ghost Hunting, which also has a DVD included with it, with um, go, uh, ghost hunts. And there was a woman named Maureen who was at the Astonet Ledge section of the Freetown State Forest where she became overwhelmed with a feeling of possession. And I don't, and I don't know, Chris, if Chris is still listening, if she was at the top of the ledge or at the bottom of the ledge. I believe she may have been at the bottom, but... She became overwhelmed with this feeling, and she got down, uh, you know, she kind of hunched over and started moaning and then started seeming like she lost control of her body, and she basically had to be tackled by the her fellow researchers who were out there with her at the time. And um, they tackled her to the, to the ground and threw holy water on her and basically held her down until the feeling passed. And we feature that in the Freetown State Forest section of the film, and it circles back to the whole Pukwudgie uh, thing because a lot of researchers say that she was possessed by a Pukwudgie. Now, whether Pukwudgie had a history of possessing people or not, I can't say, but I will say that when Pukwudgie sightings allegedly occur, they're often accompanied by either a ball of light being seen in the area or a shadowy figure. 
and one of the gentlemen who was uh, running the camera on that uh, on that on that night claims that they saw a ball of light flash nearby when that incident occurred. So it's just it is a, an instant instance in the film where we touch upon possession. Weird. That is really strange. <laughs> now you said you were at the at the psychic thing this weekend. Um, what what? What do the psychics say? I'm, I'm biting my tongue here on this one, but <laughs> what what did the psychics say about the Bridgewater Triangle? Did anyone did it? You know, maybe you didn't feature them in the movie, but maybe you uh, stumbled upon some over the course of uh, your visit there over the weekend. Did did anyone say, you know, oh, I've 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 you know I've looked at it with my psychic powers, and it's uh, because of X, Y, and Z, or do they have any any sort of uh, input on this whole thing, Manny? No, this, I mean, we didn't really discuss anything with psychics, uh, you know, in the movie, or actually, we really didn't talk to talk to any on Sunday about the uh, the whole area. I, I don't really think we've actually asked what their insight is on the whole thing. I mean, I know that I've spoken to a few over the years, but uh, they'll just tell you that you know, yeah, it's evil. The place is evil. You know, yeah, it's, uh, it's got some special history to it. Um, so, you know, I, I always find that interesting. But, no, we've never really asked them, you know, what their take on the Bridgewater Triangle is. Uh, I, you know, I, I have something to add to the to the psychic end of of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it doesn't have to do with the psychic fair that we went to. But Alan yeah. Alves uh, claims that when he first started investigating uh, – actually, let me go back. When that James Cater case happened – uh, with Mary Lou Arruda's abduction. Now, that had happened just prior to the start of the satanic activity in the Freetown State Forest. Now, the two are not related, but, uh, you know, uh, a lot of, uh, at the time of the, the Cater trial, the Cater defense tried to pin Mary Lou Arruda's murder on a satanic cult that was operating in the area because that's when that, that activity first started to happen, and it was fresh off the heels of the Carl Drew and Robert Murphy case in Fall River, which happened just after that. So there was a lot of misunderstanding that the two things were related when they weren't. But to make a long story short, when the Cater case was going on, Alan Alves decided to bring in a psychic to see if they could uh, get, get any, any information that way. And he brought the psychic into the Freetown State Forest. And according to him, she started to have a major freakout and a meltdown, claiming that the Bridgewater Triangle is evil, the Bridgewater Triangle is evil, and get me out of here, I see Satan, I see devil worship, get me out of here. Now, this, that's interesting because none of that stuff had started happening yet at that point. And then right after this, this psychic uh, went into the Freetown State Forest with Alan Alves, shortly after that, the satanic, the evidence of satanic ritual uh, started popping up. So that's just, uh, you know, uh, that's the only link between a psychic and the Bridgewater Triangle that, that I can speak of. Weird. Jeez. See, that would, yeah. There's a lot of like scary stuff here in this <laughs> in this conversation. I'm I'm gonna have trouble sleeping tonight after uh, all these stories <laughs> about guys in black robes coming out and yeah. weird uh, child abductions and psychics freaking out. It's like this is <laughs> this is some spooky stuff. Now, Aaron, uh, how what was the time frame between when you made the first film and when you made the second? And you know, did you find any sort of um, changes, I guess you'd say, in, in, in the Bridgewater Triangle and Bridgewater Triangle research and stuff like that? Well, when I did the first film, I kind of had limited resources. I was I was living only an hour and a half away, but when you're in college, an hour and a half away is, is quite a distance. So I didn't have access right. to the same things that I have access to now. 
And in that first film, there really are not a lot of first-hand eyewitness accounts featured in the film. And I didn't really even know Chris Pittman or Chris Balzano much at that point. I only came in contact with them after doing the film. Um, and the film became like a, kind of a cult classic. It got uploaded onto Google Video and had all these views and things like that. But this time around, um, it was only different because I had more access to it and had more resources to, to go by. And I had met Manny, and he had done all his research. And I, at this point, I was already friends with Balzano and Pittman and uh, was, was kind of uh, in touch with that crowd. So um, I just found it easier to do uh, to do this this film this time around because I already had those connections. But in terms of what was different, um, you know, some of the script is borrowed from the first film, some of the terminology and uh, and the, the production values are obviously much higher in this one. I, I've honed my craft a lot more over these last ten years. Um, so the production values are, are a lot higher, and I, you know, I consider myself a better writer at this point, and, and things like that. So uh, it, it's just a much more in-depth, polished look at, at this fascinating region. Okay, okay. And how long? I, we may have touched on this at the beginning, Manny, but uh, forgive me. But how long? You've been interested in this for a very long time, I presume. If you've been going to the library and looking at all the the files and stuff like that, right? Oh God, yeah. Since I was. Uh since I was a young kid. I remember, like I said, I grew up skateboarding and I, I used to use my parents' VHS camera all the time. So when I, you know, I, I, I had heard about it back then. God, I was only nine, ten years old at the time. I remember hearing the Bigfoot stories and I remember seeing uh, the stories about Bridgewater resident Joseph DeAndre's encounter in, 19, in the winter of 1978 in an area called the Claybanks in, in Bridgewater, he uh, claims allegedly he had seen Bigfoot. And we actually feature that story. And that story went on to uh, actually Joe, Joe actually ended up uh, going on to be on uh, various news segments as well as Chronicle. And uh, and he's made uh, a lot of newspapers, uh, front pages of newspapers about his encounter, as well as even a, a newspaper from uh, from Portugal. Um, about his Bigfoot encounter, and, and he's done extensive research on the Bridgewater Triangle, and we feature his story in the film, and uh, well, that goes back uh, that goes back to seventy eight, nineteen seventy eight. Oh boy! That, yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting story. We we went the, we went to the location, and uh, he showed us where the location was, and uh, we even did a, a small reenactment of that, and uh, we were able to get his story. Uh, on film, and uh, it was a good one. I'd like to, you know, ex kind of expand on the Joseph DeAndre thing. He's kind of the name that comes up when you, especially when you're Googling the Hockamark Swamp region, and his, his encounter is the most famous uh, Bigfoot encounter of the Hockamark Swamp region. The, the interesting yeah. thing about him is as soon as he saw this thing, he and I'm, I'm not joking about this, the man has dedicated his life to researching the Hockamock Swamp, researching the Bridgewater Triangle, launching these expeditions into the swamp with his expedition team members out on canoes. And back in the day, they were going in there with machetes and rifles and the whole nine yards. Um, but the most interesting thing about him is, unlike everybody else that we feature in the film, the man does not own a computer. He doesn't do social media. And I feel that if he were to do that, he probably would have a lot more success in terms of linking up with other people that are interested in in searching for this Bigfoot creature again and, and, and things like that. So, in a way, he's his own worst enemy with his resistance to 
technology, I mean, computers have been around for quite a long time now. It's not something new, but he's still, you know, he's not on the Internet. You can't email him. You can't get in touch with him, with him in that way. So he's, he's a really interesting guy. And, um, you know, it, 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 was, it was fun working with him and getting, getting him in the film as well. Now, from my recollection, and uh, you guys can clarify this, and this is, I think, key for the folks who are listening who, who uh, you know, are trying to put the mental picture together. This Hockamock Swamp is, like, massive, right? And it's it's treacherous. I mean, you can't just go – can't just. it's really hard to get deep into this thing. Isn't it, like, really, uh, really you know, swampy, no pun intended? Isn't it quite the, uh, quite the adventure if you're going to venture deep into it at all? I'll let Manny talk about that more than me because he's from that area. Yeah, Manny, tell us about it. Yeah, I mean there are certain areas in the Hockamock Swamp that are almost impassable. And there's, you know, there's some areas uh, that have so much water you could float the Queen Mary. I mean, it's just there's a there's there's areas in there that um, if there was something in there hidden, it easily could hide and you wouldn't be able to see it. And I've worked uh, I've worked on the fire department before, and and I've been on calls before of a couple hunters that have been lost in that swamp there's a lot of cases of people that have gotten lost and there was one case that i remember in particular of a hunter that got lost and three of the surrounding towns had set up fire trucks and they had just put their sirens on and i mean the sirens on a fire truck or an ambulance they're extremely loud Hmm. and he was on the cell phone with the fire chief the whole time and he was lost for a good five or six hours and He said that he could not hear the sirens at all. Oh God! And, uh, yeah, he could. He could not hear them. And I mean, Easton was involved, West Bridgewater, uh, in Bridgewater, and I even think, uh, I even think uh, a Middleboro uh, engine was involved in that. But they had set up at different areas. I know, I know one was at the dog track, Rainham Dog Track. And one was at the uh, Charlie Horse at 106 and 24, and he just he couldn't hear them at all. That's how deep he was. And I know that we've been in there as kids, and we've found quicksand, and we've just encountered areas where you just you can't you can't go in there. You can't walk the briars, the thorns. It's just so thick that um, you can easily get lost in there. And there has been a lot of cases that have gotten lost. And I do have a newspaper article, which we don't feature, but I do have it. It's from the early 1900s, and it does state that there was a man that went in there with his dog, and he never returned. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, the people that are, uh, I'm I'm sure most of the people that are listening to this show right now are listening on a computer. And if you go to Google Maps, and you zoom in on southeastern Massachusetts, there's two major highways that intersect. There's Route 24, which is a north-south highway that runs from the New Bedford and Florida region up to Brockton, I mean up to Boston. And there's another highway called 495, which is a beltway that kind of makes its way from north of Boston all the way to Cape Cod. Where those two uh, highways intersect is right in the Hockamock Swamp region. Now, if you look where those, those highways intersect, and then look to the left of the highway called Route 138, which literally cuts the swamp in two. And if you're looking at Google Earth, I mean, uh, Google Maps from a satellite point of view, it gives you a really good look at the Hockamock Swamp, and you can see just swaths of green nothingness around this Route 138. I mean, you can see the Rainham Dog Track located basically in the center of the swamp, and everything around it is the Hockamock Swamp. So you can see even now, 
it's largely undeveloped, and you can see the key in the bottom of the map that tells you one mile. So, I mean, the thing stretches miles across. Now, it is intersected by 138, but you can see how easy it would be to get lost there. You could see, even imagine, how there could be animals that we've never seen or that, uh, you know, are are rare to the area or whatever that could be living in that swamp because it is such a vast swamp and it's uniquely located in a part of Massachusetts, which is de very densely populated, but somehow it remains remote. Yeah. Now, uh, Manny, uh, one of the folks in the chat room was asking about, uh, you, you said you you culled a lot of this research from uh, the newspaper reports. With the, with the decline of print media, is it harder to get more information on this, or is it sort of like a double-edged sword where you're actually getting more stuff now via the Internet, it's sort of like a transition, uh, you know, of, of where you find the information on these events? Well, I mean, I think there's more blogs that are being written now about the Hakamok Swamp from people's encounters than before when there was no Internet. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's some excellent blogs out there that talk about some of the experiences. For instance, we do feature one um, we do feature one story in a reenactment, uh, a man by the name of a deceased resident uh, by the name of John Baker that, uh, you know, he had claims that he had seen um, a creature in the swamp and uh, it actually made the newspaper and we do feature the newspaper article as well. But I think that, um, you know, a lot of the stories don't ever make it to the newspaper. Right, right. That would I be know, stand yeah, a reason, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, I know that there's been a lot of, a lot of people that have gotten lost um, out there, and it just it never makes it to the newspaper. I mean, I know about it because I've heard it from, you know, I all my friends around fire departments around here, and you know, we all work closely, uh, you know, with the police and everything. But um, a lot of these stories don't make it to the newspaper, so it's kind of like you got to gather these stories from the witnesses. You have to find them, and you have to find which ones are legit and which ones are just saying it. You know, which ones might be lying. That's One of the strange. things that makes me very cautious with eyewitness accounts is when you have somebody that says, oh, well, on that, back in 1980, I saw the Bigfoot, and then in 1985, I saw the Thunderbird, and then in 1990, I saw cattle mutilations, and then in 1995, I saw a UFO. When you get somebody that comes to you and says, well, I saw this, I saw that, I saw that, it makes at least someone like me that much more skeptical of what they have to say. So there are very few people featured in the film that uh, claim to have had multiple uh, experiences that we we have them talk about multiple experiences. It's it's uh, it makes me a little weary when somebody for every story that comes out of the Bridgewater Triangle they claim that they've seen that, and you do run into those people along the way. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Just as much okay. as you run into trouble with competing researchers, you also get the. Uh... <laughs> The, uh, the the people that they probably just desperately want to be in the movie, or you know, they desperately want people to pay attention to them, so they they've got a new Bridgewater Triangle every time you talk to them. It's like the redheaded hitchhiker of Route 44. You can find somebody that just left the club and they had a few drinks, and they'll tell you they've seen him. <laughs> uh, you know, we, I've had so many people tell me that they've seen the redheaded hitchhiker of 44, and I've also had people tell me that they've seen him and they've never heard of the Bridgewater Triangle. That's, so, that's know, strange. Yeah. I just had somebody a couple of weeks ago, actually, that I work with. Like I said, I they had seen uh, they had seen what looked to be like a farmer standing on Route 44. Um, you know, all uh, all dirty, with a beard and a plaid shirt. And when they looked back, they were gone. Now I'm sure it's come up. And has anyone ever like picked this guy up or 
pulled down to talk, pulled over, you know, to talk to him or anything, or is it just they always kind of just miss him? Aaron? Um, the the hitchhiker, uh, some of the urban legendy type stuff. I think there's a couple that claim that if you if people may have picked him up in the car and then he disappears from his seat. Um, I'm not that well versed on the 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 numerous hitchhiker stories because you know they are more or less some of them are urban legends. So in terms yeah. of a, of a factual story where somebody came to us and said he got into our car and disappeared. We we don't have anything like that, and I haven't come across anything credible in that regard. Okay. What about, like, uh, the Pukwudgies? Has anyone ever, uh, like, talked to these things, or they kind of just sort of always, like, well, just, just out of arm's reach, so you're kind of chasing after them, and they lead you into trouble? Well, uh, like, like we said, uh, if you attribute uh, Bill Russo's uh, odd sighting to being a puck wedgie, then he had a very up close and personal encounter with it. And like I stated, it actually at one point was trying, seemed to be trying to communicate with him, and he did actually hear this thing speak. And now, like I said, I I really don't want to give away too no, much yeah, of that, just cut that you off story, there. but yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's yeah, for yeah. The, that's uh, for the, the the movie going audience, so <laughs> that's sure, a huge yeah, yeah, but yeah, so uh, he did have a. I mean. Wait until people see his his story is just absolutely fascinating. It really is. It makes watching the whole documentary worth it just for his story. Now, from a logistical point of view, when you uh, and I don't want to know about the story, but how do you convey that on the film? Did you actually have to find a dwarf and and put him under makeup and everything? To did you do a recreation, or was it he just telling the story, or was it animated? How did that all work? He, he told his story. Uh, we shot some very, very limited reenactments with him. Um, and we had to be creative in how we shot it because he's 20 years older at this point. So we had to use some unique camera angles and things like that. And for the creature itself, yeah, we had a, an artist named John uh, John Gig uh, hand draw a depiction of the, the Russo sighting. And we actually put Bill Russo in contact with Mr. Gig to uh, come up with a, a comprehensive uh uh, depiction of what Russo saw, and Russo said it was almost spot on. So it's a combination of uh, shots of the locations that he talks about in his account, uh, shots of him playing himself in a reenactment, and this hand-drawn illustration, uh, a very high-quality illustration done by, by John. So it's a combination of those things that make up that, that part of the film. Okay, yeah. I can imagine that would be a big challenge, Uh to, to sort of put that all together in, in a way, you know, it's it's such a difficult concept just to even put together in your mind. So to put it on film, you know, is commendable. Um, oh, thank you. Oh, no problem. I, I I can't wait to see this movie. Uh, now, Aaron, you you have some a follow up on the mystery on the mystery uh, cad cadio caller here. Uh, yeah, well, my mom wanted bizarre. to listen tonight, so I directed her on how to listen, and she said it wasn't working on the computer, so she probably tried to stream it right at the beginning when other people were having problems. So then she, I guess, called in to listen to the show, which I guess you can do. Uh, yeah. I don't, is that possible? Yeah, so she was calling in to listen, and she must have accidentally got uh, her name on the, the call screen there or accidentally hit a button to call in or something like that. That's the only explanation for it that, that I can think of. Weird. Uh, yeah, it, it is kind of weird. So, so my mom <laughs> is uh, responsible for that. I love you, mom. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, there's a lot of strange stuff. Now, uh, we we talked on BOA Audio a lot. Uh, sort of. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of the ghost hunter, um, you know, phenomenon, if you will. But are there people 
uh, who, instead of ghost hunting, sort of make it their, their thing to do Bridgewater Triangle hunts, if you will, or investigations. Are there people going there, you know, maybe once a month, maybe once a week? Who knows, we, you know, how much time they have. But, you know, are there, I guess the question is, you know, are there folks who are going into the Bridgewater Triangle on these expeditions to investigate? Oh, yeah, you hear a lot of people uh, saying that they, you know, I, my group went and stayed overnight in the Hockamock Swamp, or my group has visited all the locations in the Bridgewater Triangle, and I think you have a lot, I mean, there's a lot of paranormal investigation groups in Massachusetts anyway, and I think a lot of that has to do with the the age of the, the area in terms of, of settlement. I mean, this is one of the first areas in the country that was settled uh besides besides Native Americans. We have a lot of old buildings and, and you have the whole Salem thing and, and the Lizzie Borden house. So just because of all those elements, you have a lot of paranormal investigators and a lot of those groups routinely launch investigations specifically into the Bridgewater Triangle. I, I don't know if that answered your question. No, that, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Manny, when you were a big fan of the Bridgewater Triangle before you got all mixed up in this, making the movie, did you... uh do any of these sort of expeditions just to check it out? And did anything weird happen to you while you were looking into it? Well, you know, I mean, we went out there as kids. I will admit that I went out there looking for Bigfoot when we were in high school, and I will admit that I did have a, a Indiana Jones hat on that had a net over my face, walking down <laughs> and we had baseball bats and everything. So, oh, Jesus. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, the only the only thing we found when we went out there was uh, some quicksand. And uh, mosquitoes the size of my hand. Um, we didn't. Uh, we didn't really find anything. Um, and then we had the experience in Freetown, which back then, Dark Wood, Chris Balzano's book, Dark Woods, hadn't existed. So was it the Mad Trucker? We don't know. It wasn't Colpacut Road though, but we don't know what it was. But we do know that we saw it. You know, we we wouldn't make it up, and you know, it did disappear. Um, behind us. I don't know. We were going pretty fast, but um, it just vanished. Uh, you know, other than those experiences, I haven't I haven't really uh, gathered gathered a team together of people and, and gone into this uh, gone into certain areas investigating with, with EMF readers or anything. I, I haven't done that now. Yeah. I don't know what good an EMF reader would do down there, but I guess there is ghostly activity too, right? So it's well, I know that there are certain areas uh, in the Freetown State Forest um, that have a you know a lot of negative history, such as the the underground bunker and the uh, the shack that was found. That you may be able to get something. I mean, I I don't know about those you know uh, EVP readings, so I've never uh, actually captured one myself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how about, uh, like, overlap? Has there been any sort of – because, you know, a couple years ago, I think, uh, here on the show, we had a a guest on, Stan Gordon, who wrote a book about this sort of wave in the uh, 70s of UFO and Bigfoot sightings that kind of happened at the same time. Are there any sort of instances where, like, one thing's happening and, you know, like, maybe uh, – just just an example. Like, maybe they're seeing the Bigfoot, but then they see a UFO or – there's a ghost, and then all of a sudden, there's a puck what he runs by, or something crazy like that, or any sort of overlap of uh, of weird phenomena. Um, you have a um, lot of ca- uh, you have a lot of cases where people go in looking for one thing, and they come out finding another. Um, oh, you know, you'll have, uh, for instance, somebody maybe investigating a ghost sighting and see a UFO instead. Um, we don't, in terms of people in the, that are in the film that have had those experiences. Uh, I I don't really know, but 
people that you talk to say, oh, we went, you know, looking, we went on a hunt looking for Bigfoot and ended up seeing strange lights in the sky and, and things like that. So in terms of uh, people that said, I saw a UFO and then saw a Bigfoot, I, I don't, we don't have any, any accounts like that in the film. Right, right. Plus, you got to always kind of be on guard about that kind of <laughs> Exactly, kind of exactly. you got to kind of, when you get a story like that, you got to kind of talk to the witness and get a feel from them on whether they're uh, they're just looking to get get in get themselves in a movie or if they're really genuine in in uh in in their account. So you gotta kinda of be a judge of character when you're when you're doing this kind of a thing. Uh and you gotta you just gotta like I said, just be a good judge of character. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about the event that's coming up because uh, we got about ten minutes left, but I want to make sure we devote some serious time to it here or at least make sure we don't uh run up against the wall on this. So uh it's coming up on Sunday, October 20th, right? Tell us about it. Give us a little pitch for the big event. The film premieres on Sunday, October 20th at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth in their main auditorium. The event runs from 1 o'clock in the afternoon until 5 o'clock in the afternoon. The film itself runs from 2 in the afternoon to 3.30. So prior to the film, we'll have an hour-long meet-and-greet where you can meet a lot of the people that were featured in the film. A lot of the experts that were featured in the film will be at the event, including Lauren Coleman and Chris Pittman and Mike Markowitz, who's an EVP specialist, Lou Jolly from Willing City Ghosts, Andrew Lake from Greenville Paranormal. Um, who else is going to be there? Uh, I know I'm missing some people. John Brightman, uh, John Brightman from New England Paranormal Research. Uh, they, they will all be in attendance. There's going to be tables set up outside the theater where they're going to be, um, uh, you know, selling and signing books. So you come ahead of time and meet the meet the cast. You get to see the film itself from 2 to 3.30, and then after that there's going to be a question and answer panel with uh, Manny and myself and all of the uh, people that were featured in the film are welcome to answer questions. So tickets are for sale on the BridgewaterTriangleDocumentary.com, uh, and you can pay with credit card. Uh, there are still probably about 300 or so tickets left, but they are going fast, and we're selling more and more every day as we get closer to the event. So I would recommend buying them ahead of time because we can't guarantee there will be any left at the door the night of the event. And more importantly, since I know, Tim, you have a, a national audience, obviously people that are living in parts that would require flying in probably won't fly in to see this film, but they can view the uh, the entire premiere event live online there's going to be a streaming pay-per-view option, and that's just $8. And you can stream it for $8 and see the uh, events leading up to the film, the film itself, and the Q&A after. And I know people have it in their head probably that, you know, we're going to have a cameraman on site filming what's going on. But when the movie itself starts, it's not going to be somebody videotaping a screen on the wall because the quality would be terrible. The stream that's going out over the Internet will actually switch to an actual split off of the the, the film that's playing. So you'll actually get a high-quality, high-def stream of the film, and then after it's done, it'll go back to the signal from the video camera so that you can see the, the panel discussion. And the live stream tickets are also uh, available for purchase. If you visit our website, there's a link for that as well. So that's a way for people to see the film that might uh, might not otherwise be able to see it. Exactly, yeah. That's a that's a fantastic idea. I'm really uh, I'm, I'm envious that you guys came up with such a great idea. <laughs> So it's uh that's awesome, and I hope folks do check it out because uh, I'm really fascinated by this film, and I'm hoping that I can make the trip down there to UMass Dartmouth and and uh, and check it out. Now, what is the you know what's the what's the plan sort of after the big event, after the big premiere? When you know for the folks who 
aren't going to be able to do the stream. You know, maybe they got something going on that Sunday, so they can't even and get the stream. When, when are they? When are they going to be able to get a hard copy of this film in their hands? You think? Um, Manny and I have discussed this, and the plan is we'll do a running film festival after the premiere. There may be a couple other showings, so keep an eye out for that. But the plan is to probably try to get the DVD Blu-ray release uh, by the summer of 2014, leading into next Halloween. So it's essentially a year-long process. We have the premiere this Halloween season, and then by next Halloween, the DVD will be out, and we're hoping to promote it, sell it on the website, and offer it in, in as many uh, horror paranormal conventions across the country that, that we can. Nice. That sounds good, yeah. So it's going to be a bit of a wait if you want the hard copy, but there's a good chance you'll be able to see it at one of these different events around the country, what you're saying, right? Absolutely, yeah. Right. Manny, it sounds like you had something to add there. Yeah, Manny? No, no, no. I was just going to say we were going to feature a bonus feature as well, bonus features as well as a commentary, a behind-the-scenes commentary on the film we were we were thinking about doing. Oh, that would be cool. That sounds like fun to do. Well, that's, yeah, and that's the beauty of what we're doing. I mean, with DVD, the, the possibilities of, of bonus features are endless. So there's going to be a lot of stuff that may not have necessarily made the final cut of the movie that will be featured as bonus material. Yeah. That's the, that's the yeah, like you say, that's the beauty of uh, of the DVD, of the abilities of the DVD. Now, what's, it sounds like you're you're kind of married to this project for quite a while here for at least another year maybe but do you have sort of any ideas of what you may be doing on the horizon beyond this you know do you plan on getting together on another film or do you have sort of other things that each of you are getting pulled in different directions on you know that you had to table while you worked on the film that you're going to get back into so you know what's your what's your plans going forward uh beyond the bridgewater triangle documentary manny go ahead uh, manny we'll start with you buddy uh no you know what i i don't uh, see myself right now at this point doing anything else right now. I think that, you know, when it's done, uh, you know, what I got out of this was I made a great friend and, you know, we work well together. And, you know, like, like Aaron had said, we went through a lot to get this film done more than what people, more than what people, you know, could possibly imagine. It, it could be a documentary in itself. It, it really, really could be. And I think that, you know, when this is done, I think uh, hopefully it's going to open up a lot of doors for us and for the film, uh, you know, at speaking events. And uh, we'll see where it goes from there. Uh, hopefully it will lead uh, lead into uh, some big things, hopefully. Now, what? Uh, just give us a tease here. You say you've been – you sound exhausted. You sound sort of like uh... – <laughs> Like like this was a harrowing uh, adventure making this film. Like give me a sort of just a just a little idea of what what was so uh, difficult about making the movie beyond the, the I guess the logistics of making a movie. Believe me, I've never done it because I'm lazy, so I can't even imagine uh, what it takes. You can pick something, Aaron. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, is it just like the producing end of it? You know, we got to get this guy here. We all got to get together yeah, you know, well, next weekend. Oh, I can't do that because I, mean, I got my kids thing. You know that kind of thing. When the credits roll, people are going to see that uh, an entire feature-length documentary of what I consider to be very high quality, very well-written, very well-directed, very well-organized, was essentially done by two guys. Uh, we have uh, Manny's friend, Johnny D'Souza, who's been a great help in terms of uh, being a production assistant on shoots. 
but the logistics and organization of it has really been a two two person effort. I mean, my my wife has been gracious enough to to help handle some of the uh, contacting of newspaper uh, newspapers to get permission to use articles and things of that nature. But it really has been a two person effort, and trying to wear all of those hats is exhausting. And you run into a lot of brick walls. You run into a lot of people who are you know they people don't do things for free, and I understand that. And one of the things that potentially was very expensive for us was getting permission to use newspaper articles, and we found ways around that, and we were lucky enough to get a few newspapers that said, just use the articles and give us credit in the film. So it's just been coupling all those things together and trying to wear all those different hats has just been absolutely exhausting. And, uh, you know, I'll be glad when it's over, and what I'm going to do after it's over who knows, I'll probably just ride this wave for a little while and eventually maybe the next topic, I, I'm, I'm interested in doing a documentary on possibly the highway murders that occurred between New Bedford and Fall River back in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, there's a book written on it called The Killing Season. So that, that topic's always piqued my interest, but I have no plans to start that anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can imagine. I mean, you got still have a lot of work to do with this thing. I mean, this is your, like your second interview tonight, so... <laughs> And, and, and co coordinating the interviews uh, with people, even certain people, for instance, uh, what a lot of people don't know, unless I actually, unless we actually tell them, is that when we did the redheaded hitchhiker of Route 44 reenactment, the kid who actually plays the redheaded hitchhiker of Route 44 is actually the team chef for the skateboard company World Industries, which is one of the largest skateboard companies in the world. It's been around since 1987. And one of the kids that plays a passenger in the back seat is a professional skateboarder by the name of Anthony Shetler, and he runs his skateboard clothing company, AllIneedSkate.com, and he's known, he's world famous. So a lot of people that see that, unless they know, they're not going to know that. So coordinating and scheduling with those two, was hard enough, but we ended up getting them, and the scene came out very pleasing, and we we're very, very happy with it. So it's very interesting. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, let me see. We got two minutes left. I'll give you a chance uh, for anyone in the chat room to come up with uh, any other questions, but I don't think they do. They've gone off on their own little tangent here about <laughs> skin trading, which I don't even, <laughs> I don't even want to know know about. So you're thinking about maybe down the line doing uh doing a, a film on, on these murders and Manny you're still do you do you see yourself have you looked at other paranormal stuff beyond the Bridgewater Triangle or is this sort of like your like the bone that you just can't uh let go of if you will because it's been like twenty years or something you've been looking at Well I mean I I do photography. I do photography on the side. Yeah. And uh, my photography's been featured in numerous newspapers, numerous websites and um you know, I would like to eventually get the proper equipment that I would need in order to start doing weddings and, um, oh, nice. you know, really, yeah, really running a photography company. Sounds I, I, I got to plug Manny get... here. He he is a really fantastic photographer, and he did the time-lapse photography that we featured to transition between scenes in the movie, and it's really stunning. Awesome, awesome. Well, yeah. once again, the uh, the website is thebridgewatertriangledocumentary.com. Don't forget the word the at the beginning, folks. Thebridgewatertriangledocumentary.com. The big event is October 20th at UMass Dartmouth. You can find all the information there at the website, thebridgewatertriangledocumentary.com. we got one minute left, so let me do the plugs. Of course, the website is banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. 
Check us out on Facebook. If you can help us out, make a PayPal or P.O. Box donation. That would be huge. It would be greatly appreciated. No live show next week, folks, because we are kicking off the season premiere, because we'll have the season premiere of BOA Audio Season 8, featuring our old friend Jim Mars. So stay tuned for that. More information at BOA and BOA on Facebook. Aaron, Manny, thank you very much for coming on the show. I I wish you guys the best of luck with this documentary. I cannot wait to see it. And as I said, I hope you have a great turnout at the event. Hopefully I can make my way down there. If not, I'll be tuning in to check it out for sure online or in the future. It's been an absolute pleasure, Tim, and we can't thank you enough. Can't thank you enough. My pleasure, guys. Awesome. And thanks, folks, for tuning in. Thank you very much.